All right, let's get started so that we have plenty of time. I'm happy today to um, welcome James Furon to the Mershon Center. Um, Jim is the Theodore and Francis Gabal, mm -hmm. a professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford. He's also a professor of political science and a CSAC-affiliated faculty member at Stanford. His research is on democracy and international disputes, explanations for interstate wars, most recently the causes of civil wars and ethnic violence. And I understand he's working on a book with David Layton, uh, who he's co-authored a number of things with, this one on civil wars since 1945. Uh, Jim has received the Presidential Fund for Innovation and International Studies Award from the Freeman Spogli Institute of International Studies at Stanford. In 2002, he was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1991, 1999, he won the Carl Deutsch Award, presented to the scholar under 40, judged to have made the most significant contribution to the study of international relations. I could go on and on. He's on the editorial board of the APSR, the HAPS. It just uh, gets better and better. And I don't think I need to do much more. All of you know who Jim Furon is, and it's a great honor to have him here at Rashan. Jim, thanks for coming all the way over. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Rick, and, and thanks very much for the invitation, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, the paper I'm presenting is not really, uh, as, as Rick mentioned, a lot of the work I've done recently is, have been, research I've been doing has been on, on civil war, um, and, and that continues. Uh, this is a topic uh, that's something I guess I've been puzzling over for quite a while. As you all know, uh, research on the democratic peace was, um, there was a lot of it, especially in the 1990s, uh, huge empirical literature, which actually still continues, although maybe with uh, not quite the ferocity of the 1990s, but there, you know, there's still really a lot of empirical work on uh, uh, a lot of it, kind of quantitative international relations uh, regressions, looking at various aspects of uh, the dispute propensities of countries by regime type and slicing and dicing this multiple different ways. Uh, I have, um, as I said, I'd never, I, I've never really done much empirically in, in that literature. It's always bothered me, um, or I, I guess I always felt that the, that the, you know, there are some theoretical arguments or you know attempts to explain the apparent regularity, in particular the the main one that uh, joint democracy seems to be associated with a much lower likelihood that two countries will uh, fight a war against each other or, or have a serious international dispute. Um, uh, there are explanations out there. I guess I always felt that the, or have, have felt that the main ones that are out there are unsatisfying or not well worked out. And I, I always had the feeling that uh, there had to be something simpler uh, and, and more compelling than, than what we had. And, uh, you know, this idea occurred to me, I don't know, like two years ago, and I thought I'll, I'll write it up. I don't know if it's how much empirical purchase this idea really has. I think it might have some. Uh, particularly, maybe over kind of uh, put it, uh, you might put it the long durée. I'm not so sure how well this ex would explain, you know, particular disputes or the the mids data that I'll talk about in a minute. But nonetheless, I think there might be something here, and uh, I thought I'd you know, put it out there. I'm interested to hear what you all think. Um, so what I'll do is I'm actually going to do something that's not in the paper. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll spend a little time initially talking about empirics. Um, uh, this project led me into kind of looking at the the, the data, the MIDS data uh, that people have, you know, studied to death in a way um, uh, in this democratic peace literature. Uh, and you know, I think on doing that, I decided I don't know. I think I think the I, I found out some things that I, that 
I think are, are, are interesting. I'm not sure if it's entirely original, but I think it's a good, good preface to, the, the, to motivate the, what's basically a theoretical paper at, at this point. I'll talk very briefly about existing explanations, and I'll present my argument via, you know, which is developed um, uh, via a model in the paper. I'll talk very briefly about some extensions and then have one or two conclusions. Um, I'm happy to take questions and get into discussion in the course of the talk, and if it's you know, if I want to, I'll, I'll defer. You know, we'll 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 uh, I'll, I'll ask to defer to, to later. But I'm happy to take, uh, you know, you know, ra raise your hand if you'd like, uh, or or just interject. So, as you all know, democratic peace. This is uh, the fact that pairs of democracies have historically seen a lot less conflict, or, or much less conflict, it seems, than than either pairs of autocracies or uh, mixed dyads, uh, democracy and an autocracy. The evidence comes um, mainly from the Correlates of War Project's data on, on so-called militarized interstate disputes. What's a, what's a MID? Uh, they say it's an incident involving an explicit threat display or use of force by one system member towards another. Um, it's coded at the level of state dyads, so even in multilateral conflicts, which are actually, to my mind, su surprisingly rare. I mean, they occur, but... Uh, um, uh, they're, they're coded at the level of state dyads, even, say, for World War I or World War II. Um, uh, what do these include? Well, the, you know, the, you know, when you actually look at these events, I mean, one thing that's a little disturbing is that they code a lot of things that are really pretty trivial. Um, and and the, the, the filter, I'd say, is, is not that great. Um, there's some work going on by Ken Schultz and Mike Toms to kind of clean this up, and I, you know, I hope to be using that soon. Uh, but anyway, here's what we have in the, you know, in the cow mids uh, data. Um, this is like all of it from 1816 to 2001. Um, and what you see, you know, mainly is that uh, most, di I mean, not just most, virtually all dyad years are, you know, don't have uh, one of these disputes coded. In fact, what, 99.5% uh, don't have any dispute. There's, you know, compare, you know at, the, at the unit of analysis of dyad year, this is an extremely rare event. Uh, about you know a total of about three thousand mids uh, over this whole period, um, mainly you know, what they call use of force or, or display or threat to use force. Um, uh, now you know not too surprising, right? You know the overwhelmingly these are dyads that are not contiguous, so it's like two you know rather you know little states on uh, uh, you know different parts of the world. Very hard for them to have a dispute of this set uh, of two hundred thirteen states. About 20,000 of them, or no, actually only only you know 678 are geographically contiguous. Uh, as I noted, use of force can be you know what, what they call use of force in the most common category. If you actually look at the cases, uh, a lot of these are really quite minor diplomatic uh, incidents, and, and presumably threat to use force is is you know potentially even worse. So what do people typically do in the empirical literature? Well, there's there's developed a kind of canonical specification. Uh, that you know mainly do I guess to O'Neill and Russet, that goes like this: they'll they'll you know have a logit where you've got you know a zero one either the mid you know mid occurred or it didn't in that year for that for that dyad, uh, and they'll put on the right hand side were they contiguous, uh, a measure of their relative capabilities, um, whether they were allies and whether they were both democracies, and maybe some other stuff. You know, there's actually a huge amount of work where they're putting in measures of of trade. <coughs> Trade relations between countries. Um, I think, you know, to, to my mind, you know, almost as soon as you look at this, you see this is kind of a crazy specification. Uh, in that, when you look at the data, even just a little bit, it's clear that it's not right to have contiguity as just like an additive term. Everything is conditioned by contiguity, 
uh, you really, you know, it, um, uh, it, we, we really want to, you know, it just, it's kind of obvious. You want to treat as two different sets, the non-contiguous ones and the contiguous ones, because uh, there's just different stuff going on. And, and it's kind of, you know, theoretically, I don't know if you call it a theory, it's kind of clear that, you know, the, you know it's going to be, it's much harder to have a dispute. States have much less to dispute about. Everything's going to be kind of muted when we look at non-contiguous compared to contiguous states. It's also kind of odd, I think, to just to look at a ratio of capabilities and not total some notion of total capabilities. There's a nice article by uh, Hobart Hegra and JCR recently that points out that a gravity model kind of specification works a lot better. What's a gravity model? That comes from trade, where you know it turns out that trade to, trade between two countries uh, uh, is uh, is you know more or less proportional to the, the you know logs of both countries' aggregate uh, GDP. So it's like bigger states. Uh, bigger planets, more trade, um, and similarly, you know, and this was this is something that the Cal project observed right off the bat, but you know hadn't worked its way, I think, properly into these specifications, um, these empirical specifications. Bigger, stronger states, more disputes, and so you really want to put you know a measure of capabilities in, uh, you know, for each state. Uh, two other empirical issues in the literature. Um, you know, how to think about joint democracy. You know, should we be treating these mixed dyads differently? Um, and there's, you know, some of the theoretical questions turn on or, or, or may have implications for whether we think that the rate of uh, conflict incidents should be higher between, you know, just joint democracies versus everybody else or joint democracies versus, you know, are mixed, mixed dyads going to be worse or less uh, uh, disputatious than autocratic dyads and so on. <coughs> then a last empirical issue, which I think is a really big one uh, and, and, you know, received some treatment a few years back in this uh, uh, I don't know, colloquium in I.O., um, which concerns fixed effects, where and, and in that, those I.O. articles was treated as kind of a, kind of a, I don't know, a technical issue or a methodological issue. But there's, there's something, the, the real question is, is this relationship that, you know, the coefficient on joint democracy and these regressions that O'Neill and Russet and everybody runs comes up negative, you know, joint democracy, lower propensity for disputes, is that causal or is it just like a correlation due to some omitted you know, something else. Um, uh, the most, to, to my mind, the, the, clearly the most natural way to ask, to figure out is this causal is, I mean, if it is causal, we surely have to expect that if a dyad transitions from being, you know, not joint democracy and transitions to being a joint, you know, to, to both being demo democratic, we ought to see the rate of disputes incidents go down uh, if, if this is a causal relationship. And that's precisely the question we're asking when we introduce uh, uh, you know, fixed effects. In other words, a dummy variable for every dyad. Um, uh, and and here, you know, as I'll show in a second, yeah, there's still some evidence, but it's a lot weaker. So so that it may be causal, but it's not so clear. Um, this is kind of a, a somewhat you know kind of non-parametric look at the the mids data. I don't know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. and That's a lot of numbers on the board. Uh, but you know, what have we got here? So this is the number of mids per 100 dyad years for the whole the whole period, uh, divided up by whether states are contiguous or not, whether they're allies or not, um, they're, you know, the type of dyad in terms of democracy, mixed or, or joint autocracy. Uh, and the small big thing, that's, that's like, are both states above the median in terms of a, a measure of their, their uh, you know, cow capabilities, which is essentially uh, aggregate GDP? Um, uh, or are they both below, or are they, they uh, you know, uh, uh, one big, one small? Um, what things to notice? Well, just across the board, obviously, contiguous states, 
you know, the, the, the first set of three rows are, you know, tend to have significantly more disputes than the non-contiguous states. No surprise there. Uh, the allies, you know, when you compare within contiguous states, you know, these tend to be less than the non-allied states, and these tend to be less, somewhat less than uh, uh, the non-contiguous ones, um, uh, the non-contiguous non-allied states. Um, what else to note? The, on the power thing, this is kind of interesting. Uh, we see a, a, a tendency for, well, okay, so just, just everywhere, you know, the big states uh, are, are um, more uh, uh, disputatious. Um, I think we see somewhere, now how would this work, uh, uh, see a tendency among the contiguous states, I thought, for... Uh, more conflict among the small, small, yeah. Um, well, anyway, let's go to go to uh, democracy, which is where where what I'm really concerned about. Um, here, you do see what looks like this correlation, at least that you know joint democratic dyads less conflict. These these rows tend to be uh, less than the corresponding you know mixed or jointly autocratic dyads. Um, and there might be some evidence of, you know, even more fighting among the uh, mixed dyads than in the autocratic dyads, uh, which, which, will, which is an uh, important uh, fact relative to distinguishing between certain arguments about, you know, what, what, what could explain uh, a democratic peace if it is uh, a causal relationship. Um, yeah, so that, that's, those, are, those are, I think, are the main things to note. Let me show you now it's kind of more conventional political science uh, treatment with um, regression models. So this is just OLS. Uh, you'd see similar things with Logit. Um, uh, and this is pooling everything, so no fixed effects. Uh, so what do we see? Well, the, and, I, and I'm separating out. So the base category here are, are for the regime type variables is uh, jointly autocratic dyads. So this is saying that you know among the non-contiguous dyads, the uh, there's a you know somewhat lower rate of dispute incidence uh, uh, the you know for joint democracies compared to the joint autocracies and and lower than the mixed dyads as well and likewise among the continu contiguous dyads. Note that all those coefficients are much bigger for the continuous dyads. That's you know part of the reason why we ought to not be running the O'Neill Russell specification that you know everything's just much much bigger. Uh, uh, you know, there's much more action, much more disputes among the contiguous dyads. Um, okay. Uh, we, interestingly, so uh, alliances are actually positively associated, and I think we would have seen that in the, non in the table as well, uh, with dispute incidents among non-contiguous dyads. Why is that? Well, it's probably that, you know, if you're, you know, that, that's uh, ally is picking up part of states having some kind of reason to be interacting. Uh, you know, there's some issues on which they, uh, you know, they have, they have uh, you, know, you know, so it's a difference between states that have some reason to be interacting as opposed to, you know, Paraguay and Mali. Um, uh, now, that's something that will go away, as we'll see with fixed effects, which is, which is nice uh, or, you know, suggests we're, we're getting things more or less right here. So here's, here's fixed effects where we're now going to look at change within dyads over time. Uh, and what do we see? Well, we still see, uh, you know, so it's the case that among non-contiguous dyads, if they transition from both of them being uh, autocracies to both of them being democracies, there is a significant decline in the rate of dispute incidents. So that's, that's in favor of saying that, yes, there does seem, you know, that's, that's evidence in favor of, well, maybe there, there is a causal uh, effect of joint democracy here. 
uh, and there's also a negative coefficient for the continuous dyads, but it's like, you know, totally not distinguishable from zero statistically. It's also in magnitude, it's a lot smaller uh, than the, um, you know, what, than the correlation, basically, in the, in the just straight cross-sectional thing, whereas this isn't really that different, uh, you know, whether we're using fixed effects or not. So, so interestingly, you know, where most of the action is um, in you know, contiguous dyads, there's not really much evidence for a kind of a causal effect of joint democracy. Um, uh, you know, maybe there's a, uh, I, I, have, I forgot, or I don't think I've tested whether these two are significantly different. Maybe they are. Um, otherwise, what are we seeing? Well, basically, you know, bigger states, more capabilities, um, uh, more... Uh, more risk of conflict, and that's true even for change over time within dyads, which is interesting. Um, allies, now we no longer have that screwy positive coefficient on alliances for non-contiguous dyads. It's the case that when two states become allied, their dispute rates go down, which is you know, what we'd expect, or I don't know, hope would be true, I suppose. Um, okay, so summary of the empirical evidence. Strong evidence of a correlation between joint democracy and lower probability of conflict between two states and some evidence, but definitely weaker evidence, that this is a causal relationship. Um, yeah, so yeah, non-contiguous dyads that are transitioning to joint democracy see their disputes rates go down on average, but not so clear for the contiguous dyads, and that's, as you know, noted, where, where most of the disputes are. Um, any questions before I go on to theory stuff? Um, so, so now, so now I'll kind of put the causal versus it's a correlation due to something else question to the side, uh, and say, well, you know, to the extent that, or if it is a causal relationship, what might explain it? So, in the literature, uh, again, largely due to the way O'Neill and Russett have framed things, there's two. They say there's two types of stories. There's a normative stories and institutional stories, uh, and and their normative story is that well, that what explains this is what they call democratic norms of conflict resolution. Um, the idea being, I guess, that you know, democracies have certain ways internally of resolving and you know, managing political conflicts and that they, uh, they want to extend these in the international sphere, uh, but they don't do it. They only do it to other democracies. Uh, and when they encounter autocracies, they act like the autocracies. So, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, Maybe you can, I don't know, to, to me this seems a bit, it's a little bit too much like a redescription of the op observation, you know, saying that, you know, well, democracies, you know, why did democracies not fight each other? Well, they have these norms which lead them to not want to fight each other, but they act differently with autocracies. I mean, maybe there's a way to kind of spell that into a kind of less of a tautological or redescription of the observation, but um, I, I'm not sure. Then on the other hand, we've got these institutional proposals. Um, uh, which, which in many ways stem back from or, or draw on uh, what's taken to be a part of Kant's argument in, in On Perpetual Peace, which is that, you know, that uh, he says uh, uh, autocracies, these kings, they'll just go to war on a whim. If you're a democracy, you know, the people who actually are going to have to pay the costs are, are you know, implicated or you know, have some control over the decision-making or the you know, leaders are accountable to the ones who are going to pay the cost. And so, you know, essentially it's just saying that democracies have higher costs for fighting. Um, uh, Schultz has a somewhat different argument in his, uh, his book and a couple of his articles, which says that it's actually, it's more a matter of, of um, the democratic political structure allowing for clearer signaling 
uh, that having a domestic opposition that can kind of publicly take a position on whether war would be a good idea or not um, uh, for the state uh, has the effect of making a government's ability to signal clearer because they're going to be constrained by kind of this potential uh, oppositional signaling, um, uh, which makes their signaling clearer, which he shows leads to lower probability that disputes will, will escalate. The problem with both these sorts of arguments is that they really imply that the effect should be, uh, as they say in literature, monadic, not just dyadic. In other words, what we ought to, the implication of these, of these arguments, the, and, and I think this is true more generally of institutional arguments, although there's some, there some obfuscation or attempts to, to say this isn't the case, uh, not these guys, but uh, elsewhere in the literature, I think. But basically, most of these institutional arguments really have the implication that you shouldn't see uh, as much war, you know, democracies should in general be more pacific, not just with other democracies. And, and, and as we saw in the data, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence of that. If, if anything, it looks like, at least in you know, as a matter of correlation, uh, the, it's the mixed dyads, mixed, mixed dyads seem to be the most dispute prone. Uh, so like if you, you know, the empirical implication of Kant and Schultz here would be that um, you know, the most disputatious should be the auto autocratic dyads, then the mixed dyads, and then democracies at the bottom. But if anything, it looks like it's the mixed dyads that are the most dispute prone. Okay, so now the, the story I'm trying to develop in this paper um, uh, is a, say a political economy explanation um, goes like this. Uh, let's, you know, uh, grant me at least conditionally the following, uh, I don't know, assumption or hypothesis. <coughs> Suppose that uh, uh, democracies expect that if they take over territory, if they were to annex territory, take it in, in the event of a war, they would be compelled or just want to grant political rights, the same political rights to the inhabitants of the territory they conquered as their current citizens have. If, you, if, you, if you'll grant that, then it's fairly immediate that democracies really don't have much of an economic reason to go to war. Okay, think about, say, the U.S. Uh, and Canada. Uh, uh, why would the U.S. want to take, you know, would the U.S. want to take over Canada? Well, what would we get from taking over Canada? If we were going to take over Canada and then treat the Canadians like slaves and have them work for us or tax them to the hilt uh, and, you know, confisc you know, confiscate their property, uh, apply a whole different set of uh, uh, tax policy and uh, so on to them and you know, funnel the wealth to us, then that could be good for us economically, maybe, right? But if we're going to just make them, you know, make uh, uh, Ontario and these other provinces to be like states or divide them up into more states and treat them just like you know, more, more states like we've already got and the citizens in the same, like what do we get out of that? Um, not clear that it, you know, it, it, it changes your per capita tax uh, uh, burden uh, at all. In fact, you know, okay, so, so maybe if there are really big economies of scale in, in government, then maybe it's, it helps us there, you know. Um, you know, there are, you know there, and, and surely there are some uh, economies of scale in government on defense, for example. Uh, but there, you know, there might be other costs associated with running a large, you know, this this much bigger uh, federation. We've got to ship money to Nova Scotia and these poor provinces, and so on. Uh, you know, also, so so not so clear. There's any real big economic benefit if we weren't going to treat the Canadians like slaves. So now contrast that to 
uh, uh, two kings, okay, back in the 18th century. What are the kings doing? Well, they're like, you know, they're taxing, exploiting peasants to uh, build castles and be glorious and fight wars and keep other guys from fighting, from taking away uh, their castles and, and uh, their, their thrones. Uh, that's a situation where taking territory, what do you get from territory? Well, if you're a king, you get more peasants that you can extract stuff from, right? So kings have this uh, reason, uh, you know, an economic reason why taking territory is a good thing if they're going to treat the, uh, you know, the, the, their new subjects the same way as, even if they're going to treat it the same way as they're treating the, their old subjects. So what, what follows from that? Well, autocrats or, you know, these kings need to spend money on arms to deter each other uh, because they know the other guy has a reason to come, you know, grab some of your peasants. Um, and it also is going to imply that democracies are going to have a reason to spend money on arms to deter autocracies from taking their territory, okay? But not so much other democracies, at least other democracies at more or less similar economic level, okay? If, if you had democracies at very different economic levels, then potentially the poor democracy could have an incentive to take over the rich democracy uh, to, you know, increase the tax base and, you know, effectively transfer uh, uh, income from the rich people to the poor people, um, but you know, among more or less equal uh, democracies, it's not so clear what you get out of taking over the territory from the other guy. Uh, so, so what do we get then? Well, um, autocratic, autocratic, and democratic, autocratic dyads can therefore have a reason to fight in hopes of lowering their, you know, for, for the autocracies taking territory and getting more stuff, but also a reason to fight in terms of lowering your future defense burden. Uh, if the democracy, you know, say we're being threatened by this autocracy that might want to take our territory. Uh, then they're forcing us to spend money to, on you know, deterrence and defense. Uh, that can give us a reason to want to just eliminate the autocracy, change it into a democracy, so that we don't have to spend that money on uh, uh, defending defense and deterrence anymore. In other words, we can have a, a reason for uh, a war of regime change, or, or what's sometimes called liberal imperialism, uh, to make the safe, as you know, Woodrow Wilson put it, a uh, war to make the world safe for democracy. Okay. Well, so now I'm sure you're asking yourself, like, why would, what about that initial premise? Why would democracies want to grant rights to uh, the inhabitants of conquered territory? Well, so kind of as a de definitional matter, um, if, you know, if we go in, if we take over Canada and rule and, and treat them as, as subjects, then in some sense we're no longer really a, you know, a full democracy at any rate. Uh, the franchise no longer includes a large number of people. Um, uh, you know, either way, though, you know, so, so I don't know, but, but still, you could have a democracy, some country that starts out as a democracy and then, you know, becomes an empire. Uh, why wouldn't a democracy want to do that? Well, citizens of the democracy might not like this either because, I think, for two main reasons. Maybe we have just, like, a normative commitment to democratic form of government, or maybe just a normative commitment to the idea of formal political equality that, uh, you know, it's basically... Uh, our democracy and a lot, a number of the others, uh, you know, uh, post our revolution and the French Revolution, really based on this premise of kind of universal human rights, at least formally. Uh, you know, so the Canadians aren't really that different from us, uh, are deserving to be slaves in some sense. So we could have just have a normative commitment to this form of government that says, like, well, of course we would have to treat these guys ultimately as political equals. Alternatively, you, you, we can imagine a more instrumental argument. It says that uh, you know people might worry that if we deprive some in your uh, country of political rights, that could ultimately lead to undermining your own 
uh, political rights um, and lead to uh, from you know democracy to empire to uh, you know dictatorship for you as well. Uh, it's interesting. I haven't done a really extensive look at this uh, period of, of discussion in, in U.S. history, but it, but there is this very interesting thing that was called the Great Debate. Maybe it was the first such one uh, in, in IR. Um, I don't know. Um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, between uh, the imperialist camp and anti-imperialists, who were arguing over whether the U.S. should seek a colonial empire along the lines of what the British and the French had. Um, should we get into the scramble and, and, and uh, the, the, the imperial game like the European powers were? And the, on, in, in this debate, the, you know, both these arguments were made by uh, the anti-imperialists um, that if we pursued empire, we would undermine liberty at home uh, and that, you know, of course, you know, that it would be just wrong. We couldn't, uh, you know, if we were going to take over, uh, you know, Hawaii, Philippines, uh, or Cuba or, or uh, other places, then we would, of course, we would have to make them states uh, eventually. And it's quite interesting, at least as far as I've read into this, the imperialists on the imperial side of the debate, they generally accept the, you know, they accept some of these premises. In particular, they accept it as axiomatic. The, inherit, the inhabitants of territory that the U.S. W would acquire uh, would eventually get either independence or political equality. Either they'd be, you know, promoted to statehood or they would get uh, uh, independence, and that was just that was just axiomatic. No one was arguing for a kind of exploitive colonialism, where uh, you know that, what, what were the arguments they were using? Kind of strategic necessity uh, in kind of competition with other great powers, uh, trade advantages, you know, mercantile sort of things, white man's burden, um, uh, things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might. Some people may have argued, yes, we intend to give them independence, but it actually took World War II for them to do that. So it makes, yeah. it makes me wonder if the premise is correct that democracies won't entertain them. Yeah. They can just invade and no, 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 absolutely good point. Demo you know, or, uh, countries that get coded in our data sets as democratic uh, held, you know, had big empires, in particular Britain and France, where they um, treated uh, uh, huge numbers of people as subjects. That nonetheless, they're coded as democracies by Polity and, and uh, uh, Michael Doyle and others, um, which raises this question about how you know. So, two dimensions of democracy: there's the franchise, and there's the you know the is it the you know how politically competitive or are democratic processes used to select the you know within some subset of of the people living in the state. Um, but you know, yes. So there were what, and, and in the you know the paper and in the model, I'll talk, I'll look at a case of what I call colonialist democracies who uh, are willing to exploit people in, in the territories they, they conquer. And, and, and we'll look at that case. Uh, so yeah, so the claim is not any democracy anywhere in all times or any, any state with democratic procedures among some uh, you know, subset of the citizens would not uh, do this. Uh, but it is saying that you know, th there, there does seem to be this historical uh, trend and some important democracies, and I would say nowadays it's kind of, it's, uh, for reasons that aren't totally clear, but you know, it's it's pretty hard to imagine a, a democracy today taking over, you know, formally annexing, taking over part of Canada or Bermuda or whatever, and ruling the Canadians or the Bermudans as subjects. It's pretty hard to imagine. Uh, why that is, well, you know, I don't know. We can, we can come back to that. But yeah, I would say there's been some kind of a, you know, there yeah, there's been like a normative evolution, and you know, colonial. 
colonialism was thought to be okay, uh, uh, and it's no longer thought to be okay. Um, yeah. You just clarify, uh, you're saying when the democracy take over another democracy, they have to treat those people like they're citizens, but if they take over a non-democracy, they don't feel they have to treat those people as citizens. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that, that uh, I'm saying, well, I'm saying, Suppose it's the case, or, or you know, if if you if if you thought that it was plausible, or to the extent that it, it is plausible that a de- democracy would be committed or would feel itself committed, democracies would feel themselves committed to extend to the inhabitants of places they conquer the same political rights that they extend to their own citizens. Whether they are whether they're whether what they're taking over is a democracy or not. In each case, they have to raise these people up to their level, as they would see it. So there's no difference. Um, right. So, so the reason, right? So the, the 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 problem with an autocracy is that its form of government makes them a threat to you. So, you want to go in, or potentially, as we'll we'll see in the model, you want to go get rid of their autocracy so that they'll become a democracy. So you no longer have to defend yourself against them. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so the. I don't know. This argument is developed in the paper via the help of a, of a model, and the model is built on uh, this uh, um, model that Bob, Bob Powell presented in a 93 APSR paper. And it's, uh, there's a couple somewhat technical uh, changes to it, uh, but basically it's the same thing, but with the, the main innovation or, or differences are I'm building a kind of a political economy uh, behind what was very much a unitary actor, simple unitary actor setup, which was a natural place to start. So how does it work? Two states, uh, like two societies represented as kind of, you know, a continuum, in other words, kind of a, an infinite number of, of producers um, uh, or households. Uh, everybody produces an income normalized to one. Uh, there is a maximum feasible tax rate. You could say that above that rate, people can hide their income or they stop working or something like that. Uh, uh, call that lambda. Um, the model, the states all, you know, interaction proceeds in a series of periods going out to infinity. Um, uh, the states alternate, and each period a state chooses two things. It chooses, like, how much money to, uh, r- well, I guess three things. How much money to raise in taxes, how much of it to spend on arms, and then whether to attack, uh, militarily attack the other state. Um, after you raise this money, you consume what you don't, you know, so there's this guns, butter trade-off, you, you know, the stuff you spend on arms you can't consume, uh, you eat the other stuff. Uh, if you decide to attack, there's a chance you have of winning, which depends on, you know, how much, the, the amount of arms that, that each state has, and, you know, more arms is better for you, more arms to the other guy lowers your probability of winning in a war, um, you know, all right. Uh, what happens, the war is very, very represented very simply, simply it's a winner-take-all, uh, costly uh, lottery. Um, the winner takes over the loser's territory and uh, then sets taxes in all future periods, and there's no more interac- or interstate interaction, just uh, interaction within the economy. Um, at, but there's a cost of fighting, which is represented here by there's a, a permanent reduction in um, uh, the productivity or the you know, output. There's an output cost that endures. Uh, uh, you know, the economies are reduced by this factor beta less than one. Uh, so, okay, so uh, the autocrats, they always want to just raise the maximum taxes, so that's not even really a decision. So they always set the tax rate at lambda, which gives them a certain amount of stuff, 
um, and then they decide how much, well, Lambda stuff, and then they decide how much of that to, to uh, consume and how much to spend on ARMS. Uh, A sub I superscript T is how much the autocrat, uh, uh, the share spent on ARMS in period T, and you know, with that being capital A being the, the total amount of ARMS. In a democracy, uh, the, the median voter, the median voter I, I assume, chooses tax policy. And here, like, why do, why, does a, why do they want a government or why do they want any spending at all in a democracy? The only public good here is defense. Uh, you know, and that's, that's this, you know, one sense in which is, this is an extremely simple political economy. But here, you know, if you don't have any adversary, then you just choose a tax rate of zero because uh, there's nothing else that government does in this model um, or, or, or needs to do. Uh, so, and, and we'll, for scaling, it's going to be useful to say, you know, do the same thing, have uh, a, a sub I superscript T be the share of the maximum, tax, maximum possible tax revenue, which is lambda, uh, that a democracy can, you know, raise and spend on arms. So what does that give us? Well, um, uh, here, these are like payoffs for different outcomes, like say uh, a state wins a war. Uh, well, if it's an autocrat, what does the autocrat get? Well, he's now got, you know, both societies. That's two in terms of the, you know, two societies or, you know, two unit one continua. They've been reduced by a factor beta by the cost of war. And this is how much, you know, the share he can raise in tax revenue in each period subsequently. So that's what he's going to get each period after he wins a war. If he loses a war, I assume that the autocrat's eliminated or, you know, goes to being a citizen is essentially getting nothing. Um, uh, that's that's zero. Uh, if the, you know what what does the autocrat get for periods when he's just uh, you know not fighting? Well, uh, his tax revenue you know discounted by the share that he's spending on on arms. All right. Well, what about a citizen in a in a what I'll call a full democracy? And I'll distinguish that from a colonialist democracy. Well, if if you go to war, if you're a citizen in a full democracy, your state goes to war and you win, um, then you know you've taken over the other state, but by this assumption that you know you extend the same rights, these these people in the other state now become citizens in your state. No reason to spend anything on on uh, defense anymore because there's no uh, there's no security threat. Uh, so you just get your income, which is one, but reduced by the uh, you know, but it's been reduced by the cost of fighting. Now, a key thing here is note that that's also what you get if you lose a war to a full democracy, right? Because they're just going to uh, implement the same tax policy, which is, you know, they have no reason to spend, um, you know, if, if they're not going to exploit you uh, and tax you while not taxing themselves, uh, then, you know, you're going to get the same tax policy everybody else, is, everybody else gets, which is going to be zero. You get the same thing either way. And so that's kind of, it's almost, you know, it's almost immediate, or it is pretty much immediate from that, that democracies just don't have any reason to fight each other. Uh, and that's also going to imply that they don't really have any reason to spend any um, uh, arms deterring each other because there's nothing to deter. No one has a reason to fight each other. Okay, then finally we've got uh, citizens in colonialist democracies. Here, you know, if you win a war, you know, you've got your income, uh, and then you've, you can, um, you know, put, impose a tax of lambda on the other guys uh, and, cons and consume that, uh, but it's been reduced by, by beta as well. So that is, note the difference between a citizen in a colonialist democracies versus autocrats. The autocrats, you, know, you might think, and there is something to this, that uh, even without this you know, assumption I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pushing for the full democracies, uh, there's something that makes colonialist democracies a little bit less greedy uh, about territorial conquest than the autocrats, and that's that uh, you've got to divide the spoils in a colonialist democracy among 
you know, a lot of people, whereas the autocrat just has to, you know, he's got a smaller number of people himself and his, you know, main regime supporters to pay off. Uh, so, so that potentially makes war even more attractive for an autocrat than a, than a colonialist democracy. Any questions about that? Okay. So, uh, an analysis. Um, uh, in a, so what we do is we ask, like, uh, under what circumstances are there arms levels that, such that you've got two states and they want to choose these arms levels you know, repeatedly throughout time and no one, goes to, no one wants to go to war? Uh, well, what has to be the case? Well, it has to be that what a state gets each period um, uh, that's that, well, on the left-hand side up there at peace uh, has to be at least as good as, or better than what you could get by, going, by you know, breaking out spending you know, possibly more on, on arms and attacking the other guy. And that's composed of you know, your, what's probably going to be reduced consumption in the current period, but then you have a chance of winning, and then you know, if you win, like, you, know, you control everything uh, uh, forever after. Um, so there's this trade-off between you know, consumption today and potentially uh, you know, more if you win the war um, later on. Now, that's for a, you know, this is obviously for an autocracy. Okay. Now, for and, and you know, here's a difference with Powell's model. I've set this up in such a way where we can. It turns out, even though this is pretty simple, if you leave the deltas in there, it's like kind of it's it's pretty hard to analyze. Um, uh, if we just let the let delta go to one, which is a kind of equivalent to saying that they're ma they can make these decisions very quickly, which isn't really that uh, plausible. But um, uh, on the other hand, it also it doesn't really have any real consequences. The analysis will go through. If we don't do this, it's just a lot nastier. Um, anyway, if we let delta go to one, what it means is that uh, if a state wants to attack the other, then they're going to set A at, you know, they're just going to go all out um, uh, in the current period to get the maximum possible chance of winning. And that gives us a, a, a pretty simple expression that has to be true for peace to obtain. And it's that, you know, your, your, your per period payoff during peace has to be at least as great as what you could get by going all out, you know, spending your full tax revenue on arms uh, and attacking given what the other guy has. Okay. Um, so you can think, I mean, conceptually, it's going to be useful to think about the level of arms such that, which is the, the largest amount of arms such that um, uh, if the other guy is spending this much, uh, if you had to spend any, any, any this is the most um, you'd be willing to spend to stay at peace. If you had to spend any more than that, you'd rather uh, go to war. So, so what are the results? Well, or the, the key results. The, the key, you know, a key result is that it can be the case that there's no pair of arms levels such that both sides are defer, deterred from war and peace prevails. Okay, um, uh, why is that? Uh, well, it can be the case that there's the the um, the the level of armament you need to make it so the other guy doesn't want to break out is so high that peace is so uncomfortable that you'd rather just have a war. Okay, so in other words, this is saying that you know if if uh, is if if the threat of war is so uh, you know so large that um, you really have to spend a lot on arms, that makes that makes peace kind of unattractive, and it makes it more compelling to just like take the gamble of war and and, and go for it. Uh, and it, you know, as you say, it can be the case, and this is essentially there's a commitment. You know, this is war from a commitment problem. Uh, the states would be better off if they could you know arrange an agreement, uh, you know, an enforceable agreement where they weren't spending anything on arms uh, and were able to consume their whole tax revenues uh, uh, each period. 
but that's but that's not an enforceable agreement because if if I'm spending nothing, then you have an incentive to you know quickly build an army and and take me over and exploit exploit my low arms. Uh, comparative statics, you know, greater offense dominance um, uh, makes war makes it more likely that you know we won't be able to support peace. What does offense dominance mean here? It means that uh, you know that it's the sensitivity of that probability of winning function. If you know under defense dominance, if I have a small amount of arms, I can get a pretty high chance of winning or a reasonably high chance of winning, even if you spend more. If that's not the case, then it becomes harder to support a piece, uh, you know, more risk aversion or, or you know, greater diminishing returns on income uh, and smaller costs of war, uh, uh, or greater risk acceptance on income, smaller costs in war, uh, make it harder to support peace. Okay, uh, uh, graphically, you know, this is a, a kind of a Powell diagram here. What are we seeing here? Um, these are, think of these allocations of levels of arms, you know, like percent of your your uh, government budget spent on arms for state one over here and state two on that axis. Uh, the red line says like if if uh, the that the uh, state two prefers peace for any pair of arms levels to this side of the red the the red line. In other words, a one is large enough that this guy would is you know prefers to live at peace uh, if he only has to spend you know uh, an amount less than this red line. On arms, and likewise for uh, the black line for state one, when these curves intersect like this, and there's a lens, as Powell says, there are there are uh, uh, arms distributions that both sides are happy to live with, rather than break out and go to war. Uh, on, but there, it can, we can have a situation like with the dotted lines, where there just is no uh, uh, level of armament that's um, uh, uh, small enough to make peace worth living. A, um, Living with, but not so. But but um, uh, the, the the allocations that are small enough to make peace worthwhile also are too tempting in terms of they're they're not stable. Someone would want to break out and, and go for war. Okay, compare this to two democracies. So here the only thing that's changed. Well, the so in the democracy, uh, citizens getting their income less what they pay in taxes, and if they go to war and win, you know they no longer have to pay uh, uh, taxes anymore, uh, and they they have that. Here it's straightforward. There's always an equilibrium where, where neither side, you know, both democracies just set their armaments to zero because neither one has to worry. The other guy doesn't have any real reason to, to take over your, uh, to take you over if they're not going to exploit you like non-citizens. This is also the efficient outcome. So here we have regime type, you know, fairly immediately leading to um, uh, peace between democracies. The interesting case here is uh, mixed democratic autocratic dyads. Now, I thought, looking at this, I thought I was going to find that we should have, that peace would be more likely or be easier to support peace in a mixed dyad than in a mutually autocratic dyad uh, because, you know, I thought basically democracy does have a pacifying effect. You know, you have less, if the democracies are less greedy, they don't have much as much reason to want to take over uh, another state to, to exploit it. If I stipulate that, then surely this should make any dyad with a, you know, where there's a democracy less war prone. But it turns out this isn't, this isn't the case. And in some sense, the main result in the paper is that it can, you know, depending on parameters, peace can be possible uh, between two, for the same set of parameters, you can have peace between two autocracies, but no possibility of peace between a democracy and an autocracy, or vice versa. You could have a situation where 
you can support peace in the mixed dyad, but not between two autocracies. Okay. Uh, what's the intuition for that? Basically, so, so um, autocrats are rendered more war-prone by, by the argument here in one sense because they have more to gain from victory in war. You know, they, if they take over territory, they can exploit it. They can take the gains for themselves and their, you know, their, their small, the small regime around them. But there's another fact, which, which uh, I think is a point missed or not discussed by Kant, possibly because he's writing in a time with a lot of defense dominance um, among, among the monarchs, which is that uh, autocrats, at least in the formulation I've got here, where if you lose, you, know, you really lose, you're, you lose your territory and your, your, your seat, uh, they have more to lose from war as well. There's a bigger downside. Uh, and so, so if there's kind of a risk aversion, this actually can make democracies a little more war-prone in this dimension in that, you know, what do, what do you get from winning a war in a democracy? Well, you get a lower defense burden. It's a little bit better. What if you get if you lose? Well, then maybe your taxes go up some because the next regime, the Nazis, are more exploitative, and that would be a pretty bad case. But, uh, um, you know, the, the dictatorship is a little more exploitative. But it's not as big a swing as for an autocrat who is either, like, really rich or, or you know, dead maybe. Um, uh, if he loses, and so that actually has uh, an offsetting effect that can, you know it can make a democracy harder for an autocrat to deter uh, than a non-democracy, because uh, democracy says well you know this is more, relatively more willing to take the gamble of eliminating the the autocracy than another autocrat would, who would be worried about getting eliminated himself. Um, so that gives us this partial ordering where. You know, from the model, you get zero probability of war between democracies, and um, you know we can't say between these mixed and autocratic dyads. You know, it depends, but it's certainly greater than between two democracies. Um, so here's just you know an illustration in terms of those curves. This is a situation where the red and the black are two autocracies. The green line is a democracy. This is just illustrating a situation where. There's peace between, you know, you can support peace between the autocracies, but not between a, an autocracy and a democracy. Uh, and here's a situation where you can support peace between uh, in a mixed dyad, but not in the autocratic dyad. There's a feature of this which is worth noting, which is that if you can support peace between a mixed dyad, you're going to tend to have, this is going to tend to be true. It's going to tend to be true that the, the democracy spends more on arms. Uh, and why is that? Well, the democracy has, has, is in a way the one that has the bigger threat. It's the, you know, from the autocracy is the one that might want to take territory from it. It doesn't really have this greed motive. It has this defensive motive potentially for going to war. Uh, and that, what, you know, I don't know if I can make this gen or how general or what the general claim is, but it does seem to be typically the case that the democracy needs to spend more to deter the autocracy if there's going to be peace in a mixed dyad. You know, potentially a testable proposition, although whether you know, whether it would work, I, I really don't know. Um, okay, what about colonialist democracies? Uh, so these are states that, you know, we're going to you know, drop this assumption, assume that, you know, uh, like Britain or France, uh, arguably in the 19th century and up to World War II, that they, um, I mean, formally they kind of dropped the idea that they were, you know, going to be, you know, farming the colonies for income uh, fairly early on. But, you know, arguably, you know, and it's actually, and I think, you know, economic historians who look at it don't find much evidence that they actually got much economically out of their colonies. But suppose, you know, supposing, you know, there's some argument that, that they did, especially out of India, or Britain did out of India. 
so let's consider this case of, of uh, you know, you treat your citizens at home with one tax policy and you, you have higher taxes effectively on the uh, subjects in the empire. What do we get then? Um, well, uh, it's, you know, so you, you, there, you can't say a whole lot. We can say that mutual democracies are going to be less war prone than mixed democratic autocratic dyads. Um, which are going to be less war prone than a colonialist democracy and an auto uh, a full autocracy, but there's no real ordering for like uh, jointly colonialist democracies and so on. You could have you know colonialist. I mean, I guess the, I guess the upshot would be we expect you know that colonialist democracies would be more warlike and we'd see more conflict uh, potentially with other colonialist democracies um, uh, and autocracies. Uh, than otherwise. And, and again, you have these two effects coming into play. Um, on the one hand, colonialist democracies have less to gain from taking territory than an autocracy does because you've got to divide the spoils among a larger number of, of uh, people uh, effectively. Uh, but on the other hand, um, they're, you know, they're running less risk of like really extreme outcomes than an autocracy is by, by going to war. So it can go either way. I'm going to skip over the different size state stuff. Any questions? Yeah, Bear. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's this, this assumption that the democracies are relatively, that non-colonialist democracies are relatively equal. Mm -hmm. um, if they're not, do you get a result that's sort of similar to colonialist democracy that extracts it at a higher rate from its where you have poorer Right. So, so right. If you had a really poor, a poor country and a, a poor democracy and a rich democracy, and we just and you know let's keep things real simple and say there's going to be a linear tax rate uh, in in the state that forms after a war, uh, uh, but suppose that the um, yeah uh, and 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 let's suppose further that there, you know everyone's going to be a citizen and the median voter is going to call the shots. If the poor state is more populous. Um, or if the median voter in the in the new uh, state has you know a lower income than in the old the old state, then potentially the you know the people in the poor democracy are going to be better off because there will be income transfer from the rich part of the the place to the poor part, uh, and that could yeah and so that could create you know then then the rich country has to build arms to deter uh, attack by the poor democracy. So yeah, so then we can we can get, we can get some conflict there. There's a question. There's some interesting work by uh, Gerard Bolton and uh, um, uh, Duatrepon, uh, uh on um, done in the context of kind of thinking about the European Union and mergers between countries and not. And 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 you could, I mean, you could still do better uh, than rather than fight a war. If they just federated, uh, they can avoid the cost of war and construct like a two-part tax schedule or something that would. But, you know, but then, you know, there's a question of could this be done and would it, you know, there's credibility issues and so on. Arguably, you know, democracies that have these institutions that can make these kind of commitments might be better able to work that out than an autocracy. But, you know, I don't know. But, yeah, but basically I think the upshot is yes, out of this framework, you, you, can, you do get the implication, I suppose, that uh, more risk of conflict between rich and poor democracies than among similarly placed. Yeah. Yeah, Craig. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're interacting with you know, and um, 
case in extending this logic that uh, the democracy would most set its defense funding and potentially go to war with its worst threat? And the autocracy having a different logic than that? Hmm. Maybe. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think the, you know, the, things are in general vexed when we start talking about more than two states. And uh, um, uh, I think that's the case here. I mean, I think, well, although I think there's one, one probably pretty straightforward implication, which is this, that, you know, so in this two-state world, you can see, you know, I, I, if you eliminate the other guy, then you don't have to spend anything on arms, right? But that's not the way the world is. There's other states and if there were a bunch of other big, strong states who you were going to have to deter subsequently, then that benefit uh, is smaller. So that potentially gives an implication about, you know, about distributions of power. And if you've got a bunch of strong states, then uh, the, you know, the incentives for liberal imperialism are going to be smaller for a democracy because, you, you know, you're still going to have to be spending a lot on deterrence afterwards anyway. So there, So I think... And I haven't, I haven't played these out in the current version of the paper, but I really ought to in a, in a subsequent version. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a good question, and and uh, um, it's not really an answer. But one of the, one of the things I like about this is that it does seem like there are a bunch of options for kind of natural ways to uh, make things a little richer that would give you a lot of a lot of um, you know empirical implications. I, I'm not sure we need to move away from the. Or my first step, I think, would not be to move away from the linear tax, but rather from the assumption that everybody produces the same income. So instead, modify it so that there's a distribution of income, and there are rich people and poor people within each country. And then you're going to immediately get consequences as to who wants to support war and who doesn't. Um, and I, th I think it's pretty much the uh, the rich people don't want to go to war, and the poor people do, uh, because of the distributional. I'm actually I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think you get I think we get some implications like that. Uh, yeah, uh, I understand that this is a political analysis, but I kind of feel like this is a hothouse flower. That this is a very like, minority of reasons that states go to war. Often mm -hmm. they'll go to war for ideological or uh, nationalist reasons that don't don't really require or involve any kind of economic calculation. I'm thinking, for instance, of the Argentine and British fight over the Balkans. Surely they were not rationally calculating the value <laughs> right, of the right. sheep or whatever. Right. Uh, and yet they spent a lot of money on that war. Um, and yeah. so what I really want is what would be your reaction to a question like that? You know, if you would look at this spectrum of reasons why two states would go to war, how important is this rational calculation? Uh, I think it's a really good question, and it's also a nice setup for the next slide. So let me go into the next slide. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, one thing you might ask, and here's maybe another way of asking your, another way to ask your question would be this, and it really is the same question. What's going on in the model that drives war? Well, in the, in, in, in the model strictly, you know, uh, on a strict interpretation, 
the reason you're getting war is that countries are thinking like, well, uh, you know, it's just too expensive to live at peace, all this money we're spending on defense. Like this is, it's, the defense burden is kind of driving states to go to war. And I think it's reasonable to ask, and I, I don't think it's the case, that there are very many wars, perhaps if any, uh, where that's like the sole thing, or like, or even like the, you know, 90%. Uh, Do you name any war in which that is the case? Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not sure there's anywhere where that's been like the sole thing. Has but ever been any? We just, just John, hold off one second and let me. <laughs> only second. So, so, um, uh, so I think there are cases where it's arguably part of the story. And in fact, this argument is is kind of it's kind of built into the the, the standard uh, uh, balance of power. Uh, argument that was is behind World War One, World War Two. So Britain and the U.S. What are they worried about? Well, they're worried about facing uh, you know a, a, a continent under Nazi Germany that's going to be very difficult and expensive to deter, um, and you know and 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 hard. You know you're going to have to spend a lot of money, even if you don't think that Germany is going to come over and take over the continental U.S. Uh, we're going to have to spend a lot on arms to not get pushed around globally uh, by this very big state. So. So I think you know, the logic does play, come into play there. Eisenhower, uh, and you know, says a whole bunch of things during in the 1950s uh, that are you know kind of exactly this kind of logic, where it's saying like, uh, mightn't it be better just to go to war with the Soviet Union now um, rather than be kind of under this crushing uh, uh, military industrial uh, burden? Of course, he didn't in the end. Uh, but it was definitely, you know, it was a consideration. Iraq in 2003, this might be the weakest of these, uh, of these cases, but nonetheless, Iraq in 2003, uh, you know, part of the reasons for the war is this sense that the deterrence regime isn't going to work and that, um, you know, down the line we're going to face a more difficult, potentially more, I don't know if it was really the expense, but nonetheless uh, a, a bigger problem uh, uh, with deterrence down the line if, if uh, Saddam Hussein was able to rearm. But as I say, like, not a lot of great examples and most accounts of how, you know, and accounts that I've uh, participated in one way or another uh, for how wars come, you know, how wars happen, stress issue conflicts and failure of a bargaining process. Okay. So one of the variations of this model that I look at in the paper uh, uh, is a model, uh, kind of a simplified version of the dynamic game uh, with two periods where uh, the states in the model are choosing arms levels, but they're also making proposals over a disputed issue, which is like a separate thing, like the Falklands or Malvinas. And uh, uh, so they're making proposals on this, and there's some uncertainty that one state has about the other guy's kind of uh, value for this issue at stake. And so there's a possibility of bargaining failure due to asking for too much. And what I show in that is that um, there's an interaction here where, you know, uh, so in bargaining over some issue, you're, you're, you know, you're, making, you're making demands and, and offers. How, and, and what determines the, the risk of war in those models? Well, it's like, in the end, it's like, well, how much risk of war are you willing to run by making a tough offer, uh, you know, as against how much you value doing well on this particular issue? Well, what, what is one important factor determining how much risk you're willing to run? Well, it's the value of the status quo. And, it, you know, it's a straightforward consequence of the model that, the, you know, the more you're having to spend on arms for deterrence, the more risk you're willing to run uh, in crisis bargaining. So this is something I can imagine, uh, although I don't know, like in the, the Falklands and Malvinas case, whether this is at all, you know, at all relevant. But um, I can imagine other cases. I can think of some possibly uh, Middle East cases where, yes, the, you know, there, there is, uh, um, 
you know, part of the willingness to run risk in crisis bargaining is related to uh, the sense of, uh, you know, the sustainability or the, you know, the costs of uh, continued deterrence and defense. So, I don't know, John, do you want to try, you want to say again, or, I mean, is, am I answering your question there? Okay. All right. Uh, so, conclusions. As an empirical matter, I do think it is, since 1945, increasingly hard to imagine a democracy proposing to acquire territory by force and rule over the inhabitants as formal subjects. Um, I think there's a definitional question here. If a, de if a democracy did this, would we still be a democracy? I find it interesting that uh, South Africa and, Brit and the British and French Empire are treated quite differently in the democracy codings. So, uh, you know, South Africa typically doesn't do too well, according to Polity or um, Michael Doyle and others. Uh, whereas the British and French Empire are considered democracies from, you know, mid-18th century more or less uh, straight through, even though they're ruling over uh, thousands and thousands of people as subjects. Basically, you know, what, what are we seeing here? There's, the, you know, there's two dimensions of democracy. There's the extent of the franchise, and then there's the degree of democracy in terms of political competition or the, you know, selection of leaders um, among the citizens. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know, this is interesting. I'm not sure quite how to think about that. But putting that aside... Uh, back to this question, why would a democracy adopt a universalist commitment to political equality for inhabitants of conquered territory? Again, a norm, there's, I think there's, you know, there's kind of a normative story here, just a normative attachment. And this makes me wonder whether, you know, and I, which I find a little bit more compelling than you know, the instrumental arguments, or at least as the instrumental arguments that I've been able to come up with. Um, you know, the U.S. and France are, you know, born of the Enlightenment, right? And, and a key feature of our democracy, you know, you read the, you know, our founding documents and also the French ones, uh, is this commitment to uh, universal human rights or, you know, a universal, you know, equality of all people. Now, that was obviously a theoretical notion that we didn't apply to Native Americans or, or uh, African Americans um, and that France was kind of weird and uncomfortable about in their uh, 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 colonial empire. Uh, but nonetheless, there was this ideal, and it plays itself out over time, and we become formally more in line with the, uh, the founding documents' uh, normative commitments. I can imagine hypothetically, and I think there are some examples in practice, especially maybe in the ancient world, of democracies that treat their citizens, you know, they have a democracy internally, but they have no problem with treating other people as potential slaves. Uh, hard for me to imagine that a world of such democracies would be especially pacific. I mean, maybe, and maybe there are other reasons that make democracies you know, better at resolving disputes or so on. But, but this makes me wonder, and this is just kind of throwing a thought out there, whether you know, to the extent that there's a causal relationship here, then maybe the democratic pieces in some sense are partially, I don't know, a contingent feature of the kind of democracies we have, which would be Enlightenment uh, democracies. Last, okay, instrumental attachment, Gore Vidal, others, you know, constantly make the argument that empire abroad makes democracy at home less secure. Um, uh, you know, as I say, I think that may be more strained, but it's also an argument that we might, you know, I don't know, that might be developed. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, well, I was going to say, there are a lot of testable empirical implications here, sorry, uh, which I'm happy to talk about in questions. <laughs> Try to. Yeah. I was just wondering how does your, your model compare in terms of explanatory power to the um, other strand of uh, democratic piece you were talking about, the normative strand of the institutional strand? Um, and also, just coming back to, to the question already posed, it seems that the model assumes that the main uh, 
motives for war or uh, colonial conquest or regime change for security purposes. I was just wondering how much that reduces the uh, scope or scope conditions of your model, whether that's done. Okay, well, let me take the second one first. So I think it reduces the scope a lot, and that's why I mentioned briefly at the very start that I think of it maybe being, I don't know, having having force over a kind of uh, long durée as opposed to being a lot of this, a lot of the, the mids, right, are about little things where it's hard, you know, it's hard to imagine like territorial conquest being at stake, which is which is a key thing in the, in the model. So, so I'm willing, I, I'd, I'd be willing to grant the suggestion that this doesn't cover a lot of international dispute activity. Um, how does this compare to the, you know, the, I think you, you asked how does it, how well does it do empirically against the other theories? Well, there I'd say um, uh, I think very well in that the other theories, I mean, a theory, you can't test a theory if it's not if it's invalid, right? And and uh, or, or or put it differently, the institutional arguments. What I was trying to say don't predict the right things about the data. They don't produce the institutional theories as I read them. Predict that you should have the least amount of fighting between democracies, next between mixed dyads, and most between autocracies. But that's not really what we see. Whereas I have an argument which where you get zero among the democracies and then could go either way among the other. Two. Yeah. But that's that's one of the arguments that I think just doesn't actually work when you look at it, and because the, the question is, you'd expect that having higher war costs, the rate at which democracies fight back should be lower. Yeah, yeah, Rick. And I think the Canadians would care if the Americans would, and I'm wondering why. 
Well, it's nationalism. I mean, you know, it's well, but you, you argue in a later paper that the traditional form of this by Wayne and Whiskey and others would say, well, they're policy issues, right? But they were always ill-defined policy issues. States A and states B have some issue over which they're in contest, but we're going to leave that aside. Deal with the, the latter part of your paper, that there are policy issues in dispute which traditionally are left ill-defined or undefined because they're just abstract. And then you say, that that doesn't matter, that your model will cover that anyway. Well, it, you, you'll, you'll I see the... follow that part of the paper. Why would that follow that um, even if you have policy disputes, you know, we want France to help us in Iraq, but France doesn't want to do that. And so it, it's unrelated tax rates. Is there some other substantive policy, policy dispute in which we disagree and that may not be enough one for us to go to war over it? But there could be other things under so, the so it wouldn't matter in the, in the sense like, so you could have <laughs> democracies needing to arm against each other to deter because there are some policy issues that, like, say, uh, um, you know, two democracies have a nationalist and irredentist dispute over some territory that they both think is the cradle of their, their national ethnic civilization, right? So two such democracies would have reasons or could have reasons to arm against each other uh, to try to do better in bargaining over that, you know, over Kosovo, uh, um, say. Uh, but what would be missing would be the, um, the, the value of taking over, uh, you know, the Serbs don't want to take over, um, this is, doesn't work exactly, but say doesn't want to take over Albania completely, right? Because they, because they're, you know, th uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to do that. Whereas, you know, uh, um, the kind of the king in the king, you know, the, the king scenario, it's like, well, take over the Albanians and exploit them too. Um, you, see, you see, the point I'm making is that, yes, you could have other, you could have nationalism being an issue over which two democracies would, uh, could, you know, cause conflict between democracies. But, um, you know, you know I'm, I'm working from, I'm saying like, okay, let's just look at the political economy part of the equation. And that that's, you know, that that's a whole set of reasons where, uh, you know, these economic reasons are not going to be present or not nearly, not present in nearly the same force among democracies as, you know, in mixed dyads or between autocracies. Yeah, don't your analyses show, though, before you put the fixed effects in, you've got R-squared plus 0.01. And then you put the fixed effects in, it goes up like 0.16. Mm. Doesn't that show that it's, it's the cross-sectional variance that's explaining most of these? Yeah, I think that. Um, uh, which, which was my original question: How important? Yeah. The puzzle is this sort of economic reason that's used for the way it looks from your analysis. It's a fairly minor part. Well, I mean, note also that the dependent variable there is a fairly minor thing. Um, I mean, it's like these mids, which are like these, you know, you know, the Norwegians board the Australians' boat somewhere, and it's a mid. Um, uh, uh, you know, I guess I think in terms of like the, you know, both world, you know, the, what, the argument I was making or suggesting about World War II, or you could do some similar things with World War I and making the world safe for democracy, the U.S. Uh, uh, general kind of liberal imperialist arguments about why the U.S., and, you know, Britain and others uh, ought to be uh, invading uh, countries to turn them into, um, uh, you know, bad autocracies to turn them into democracies, 
uh, I think you know th those arguments have to do with like, well, this is going to you know make make us safer because we won't be as threatened by these uh, non-democracies. But you know, I don't know. I, I, I take your point. I am kind of struggling to say. Well, I, I don't know how big a uh, uh, how big the empirical impact is is here. I think there are other ways to test implications of the model, particularly about size of you know how much how much a country spends on arms. Um, I didn't talk about that variation of the model, but um, there are a bunch of kind of testable implications on like who arms more in a you know take a diet that's had a series of uh, disputes. So we know there's something they're in conflict over, uh, and look at their um, level of arms spending and see that the you know I've got implications for how much should that be if they're both democracies, if one's an autocracy and one's not, and so on. So I think there are things I, I can I can uh, assess here. I don't have an answer to like you know, what percentage of the variance. I mean I'm not sure how I could have. Oh, yeah, no, I don't have an answer to that question. You know, and also how to interpret the fixed effects there. I'm not sure that that is really a good argument in favor of. I'm not sure what that's an argument in favor of, really. Um, well, my concern with fixed effects has always yeah. been that they do represent the cross sectional variance of the model. There's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not really. I've heard people argue that fixed effects pretty much solves all your you know, unobserved heterogeneity. But that's not really the case because. Those fixed effects can be interacting with the stuff that's in the model. It's possible, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I understand what you're doing. You're, this is a thin model of rationalism between states, and it's a good exercise. But I was just asking for the broader implications. Well, I mean, the, the point for using the fixed effects there is, is a causal identification thing. We want to know, you know, that, that's really to say, um, you know, if we really, you know, that's about trying to say, is this this association with joint democracy, is that causal or is it something else? And, and there, I think, is quite helpful for, for identifying that. Interpreting the R squared, I mean, you know, R squareds always go up when you, you know, introduce, uh, uh, you know, 65,000 dummies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Do you think that, that the bigger... I'm an autocracy and I have a population. I don't have to extend them any civil rights rights. No. So the citizenry that I already previously had doesn't lose any power because there's no difference. I have a bigger population, but they're all still oppressed. But if I'm a democracy... Oh, oh so, so you're giving me a reason, a reason why a democracy might not want to extend rights. Yeah, for, yeah. for, any, for any reason. For, mm -hmm. To, to uh, take over another democracy or another autocracy because... I'm incurring a larger population, which takes my current citizenry's political participation or effectiveness in the policy, and it lowers it because I'm incurring a larger population. So it's a deterrent amongst the citizenry to even want to go towards another place. I see what you're saying. My, yeah. my interest group has less power. There's mm -hmm. no precedent for that in this country. We have metropolitan consolidation plans where they want to make one big. 
default in the area, almost always get voted down because suburban voters don't want to yeah. the power line. Well, but that's that's often a redistribution. You know, they, the richer suburban areas don't want to have to pay for schooling in the poorer communities. I also want to keep being able to affect politics. Yeah. No, that's interesting. So you'd say, like, you know, that, that you're less effective in the U.S. than you would be if you were a citizen of Britain. Like, like right now, let's say you take all the illegal immigrants, we make them legal all right now. Yeah. My power as an, an, a citizen is going to be lowered because we just incurred 11 more million people who have their interests. And they're going to be able to participate as equally in the system as I am. So I have less power because there are more people mm. in the group. So if I have three people in the group, we each have power. If I introduce three more people, I now have less power in the say if we all vote. If I take 100 people, well, I can. I'm now one, one person out of 100 people, and in an autocracy, I'm the king. You can take 10 people, I rule them all. You can take 100 people, I rule them all. It doesn't matter what they say. So there's a big difference between the size and, I guess, the democracy. I have to think about that. I'm, 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 not, sure I, I'm not sure I go with that premise, but... Uh... But yeah, it's interesting. It might be another reason for why democracies wouldn't want to take over other other countries. Yeah, yeah, John. Uh, wouldn't uh, free traders be in favor of ex cheap expansionary wars? I mean, basically, the United States is the world's biggest free trade area. If it also to take cheaply to take over Canada, everybody would prosper. It's not just certain lightning the spoils where you have it, but the, their, by their theory, uh, everybody would be rich. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, so war for free trade. For a free trade, if you're a free yeah. trader, cheap, the war is very expensive. Uh, yeah. It's cheap. Well, the the Canadians are looking the other way. You know this. It's a cheap war, and then, then you have this much bigger free trade zone. And so everybody, would, in general, would yeah, there, there's probably some Canadians in the room. I want to apologize. To the <laughs> Um, but uh, um, so 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 right so so you know as as I'm sure you know and as you you've made some of these arguments that you know one of the reasons for uh, things have been relatively peaceful since World War II is that we had this successful pretty successful world trading system and you know compared to the 30s like if you've got a lot of protectionism then there are these uh, gains from uh, uh, expansion in terms of economic efficiencies. And that's yeah, that's that's not in the story. I don't have any trade between the countries, and and um, I suppose that's right. If if you have if if we have a reason to think that the democracies are setting going to be setting up like maybe the democracies, you know, uh, Danielle has argued the, the opposite, but suppose the democracies are worse on protectionism than the autocracies, uh, um, then uh, I suppose that could give us a reason for democracies to fight each other to. Well, actually, no way. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't really give. It, it it doesn't give them a reason to fight each other. It gives them a reason to federate, or or you know, you know, yeah. Well, why would it have to be forcible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that thing. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 
in the wake of successful work. Part of the payoff is I no longer have to pay the iterate out of my product rather than the amount of time. So you can't stop. But if you can't, you know, maybe Eisenhower is what, right is what I'm saying. In a world of military industrial complexes where you can't radically reduce your military spending in the wake of successful complexes of autocratic cultures, um, then it doesn't make sense to do so because I'm not getting that benefit of built in the cost of the war. And so we would expect democratic states to be more pacific precisely because they're making um, but but we, we, we did reduce spending for a while after the Cold War. I believe we reduced it some, absolutely. But I think that as a percentage of the GDP or the percentage of the pain uh, beforehand, it never goes back anywhere near to the ex ante condition. And that, that gap. To ex ante being when? Um, call it before the Second World War. We ramped it up massively. We climbed again. We ramped it up during the 20s. Time again, but it's not yeah. Um, and if there's a ratchet, hmm. I may not, you may disagree empirically, which could then bring up John, but it is back to 50% of GDP. Yeah, sure. And mm -hmm. it's back now. And, and yeah. it, it strikes me that it's a better case to take Germany. Security threats to Germany have evaporated. Spending on the military has certainly declined, but not as much as you would have expected it to decline, or as much as it might have been a different era where um, national budget funding things were much more immutable uh, to up and down. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I I, I haven't uh, certainly haven't thought of that. I mean, I guess I thought of um, you know if I were going to try to take this more to data, my first stop would be to look at um, so-called enduring rivalries, uh, pairs of countries that um, are you know have have some something they're disputing over, they're contiguous, and you know they're they're spend they're in most cases spending a lot of money on uh, on, on armament. Um, I think I'd also might look, or I'd, I might try to look at data from the 17th and 18th centuries when states spent really high percentages of their uh, tax revenues on 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 the military, and this was a really big consideration. But uh, but you know, U.S. defense spending, I think, is you know, especially post post Soviet Union, is is doing a lot of different things than than is you know we're seeing here. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks. 15 minutes past when most people may need to leave. So I want to thank everyone for staying. I especially want to thank Jim for coming to be with us today. So thank you all. Thanks. Jim will be here for a while. If you have questions, feel free to continue. But I needed to let those of you who need to go, go.